You guys can grab a seat. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed the kids' church. Uh, everyone else, you're stuck here with me. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Hebrews um, chapter 10 is where we're going to land, 11 through 18. Um, and as, as we're going there, a couple of quick things I just want to throw out for you guys. Um, one is very selfish, I know, but I, I need some prayer on something. Um, and the other, I just want to draw attention to something. So um, tomorrow, I, I have the opportunity to go into Lumpkin County High School. I'm the chaplain for the JROTC and teach three different classes about suicide prevention, um, which is a massive topic amongst high school students. And, and just it, by and large, coming out of 2020, it's a massive conversation. Um, so I would just ask for your prayers in this process. Uh, obviously, I would just love to go in and proclaim the gospel as boldly as I can, uh, but there's got to be some avenues around the way that I do that. But um, just pray for those students that they would hear the gospel, they would be receptive to the gospel, um, and that their life matters. So can I count on you guys to pray for me tomorrow in that, those three classes? All right, good. Um, thank you, Caleb. And then the other thing, tonight, I want to draw your attention to this. Um, we've been working through our family reunion, so once a month we get together at Blue Mountain Vineyard um, and talk about what is going on in our culture. That's kind of been our um, spring series. So we've gone through just the realities of where we are with biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, marriage, just how the culture has gotten to where it is. But last time we talked about biblical manhood, tonight we're talking on biblical womanhood, um, which is think, I think is just massively important for us to understand, to get to. Um, manhood is one of those things that... that it is, it's easier to define. The culture isn't necessarily going after manhood as much as they are going after womanhood. So I just encourage everyone to come. I'll talk a little bit more about it tonight or after this, but I'll just go ahead and put five to seven. Come, food's provided as long as you pay for it. Just get there, all right? I'll get more announcements there, but I just want to put that bug in your ear because it's going to be great. So uh, Hebrews 10 is where we're going to land. Uh, and, and, and before we get there, I did something that I've never done before. You want to know what I did? planned? No, bro, I'll wing everything. You know better than that. No, so Friday night, we had 11 girls spend the night at our house. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven of them, because my daughter's turning ten this year, and my wife thought it was going to be a great idea. Uh, it was not. Eleven girls. And so as I was watching just my house crumble in front of me, um, I just keep having these thoughts. And primarily, I had a thought about 1.30 in the morning because there's nothing else to do other than try to keep the girls quiet. So I'm doing laundry, and I'm trying to think through what is the true definition of premeditated. Um, so I'm, I'm just kidding. It's not true. Uh, I'm working on laundry, and I'm going, man, there, there should be some parallels here amongst the church because within 11 girls, ages 7 to 10, there was three distinct pockets of girls that, that kind of raised up that night. So the first, which were my favorite, right, these girls were furious. We went downstairs to go to sleep, let us go to sleep. So about 12 o'clock, our bedroom and the basement door match. So these three girls came up stomping furious. Mr. Dodd, you said bedtime. It, they didn't call me Mr. Dodd, but I like that. Mr. Dodd, you said bedtime. The girls are still awake. I'm like, all right. So we got the rule follower, so we went and got them put away. By 1.30, I was done. I, did, I Googled premeditated. I figured out I couldn't do that, so I went down there and said, listen, it's time to go to bed. But there was another group of girls down there that were already passed out, right? I mean, mouth open, snoring, asleep. But then there's this third group of girls uh, that will never be allowed at my house again. I'll just put it that way. 
that were just crazy. The freedom that they had that night, they could not handle it. Uh, and my wife, whom I love, decided it would be great to have a three-course meal that night of desserts. So we had ice cream, and then we had cookies, and then we had cake. Yeah, sure, let's do that, and then expect him to go to bed by 10 o'clock. But as I was thinking, because I was delirious and there's nothing else to do, how the symbolism of that with the church I mean, if you kind of draw these parallels, it's pretty obvious that there's a group of the church that want nothing to do with the world. Those are the three girls that came up and went to bed. They're just, they want to separate themselves. The world is yucky. The world is icky. They don't follow the rules. I'm going to separate myself out. And then there's a group of the church that are the ones that could not handle the freedom. So they see the freedom that the world offers, and they just go for it. They're running for it. They're embracing the world. They're syncretist at best. We can combine the Bible and the worldly view. Let's do this thing together. And then you have another group of girls that are just asleep. And the church can just be asleep that we are totally ignorant of the things that are going on around us. But what didn't happen that night in my basement and what isn't happening in the church across the globe right now is anyone filled with courage to stand up and say, this is wrong, go to sleep. This is wrong, let's hold fast to Scripture. We should not be acting this way. We should not be behaving this way. And so we're seeing the underlining current in the book of Hebrews is the author is trying to constantly plead back, go back, um, understand that Jesus is greater than, Jesus greater than the prophets, greater than the Old Testament, greater than the law, greater than the priests. And so underneath all of this is this subliminal message, but is the reality that if we truly believe that Jesus is greater, we're going to have a courage that wells up in us that cannot stop us. And so this morning, what we're going to see, what my hope is for us, is that we would be so confident. This courage would just well up in us because who Christ is and what he's given us, that we'd be unstoppable, that we wouldn't be the ones that are asleep, we wouldn't be the ones that are separating, and God help us, we would not be the ones that looked like the world, but we would be the courageous church that Christ has designed us to be. So with that kind of in view, let's look at Hebrews 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. Hebrews 10, 11 through 18, and then we'll pray and we'll start going into it. Hebrews 10, pick it up in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawlessness, or lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So let's pray. Father, would you speak to us this morning through your word? God, would you give us just courage and confidence in who you are? God, we don't want to be asleep missing what you had for us. We don't want to be separated from the world. We're supposed to be salt and light to the world, but we don't want to look like the world either. So Father, would we grow in our courage? Would we grow in our confidence in you? It's your name that we pray. Amen. Now, we have to understand, and, and I will apologize, I haven't done the best job at this, 
where we are in history, right? So we're writing or we're reading through this letter written to a little remnant house church in Rome. And by the best estimate that we see, this is probably 20 to 40 people that are receiving this letter, receiving this sermon. And so we understand what's kind of the time frame that's happening. So this is roughly about 30 years after the ascension of Christ. So they've had about 30 years of peace, and they're about to go into 40 years of the most intense and brutal persecution imaginable. So we're kind of right on this precipice. Hold fast to who Christ is. Jesus is better than because persecution suffering is coming. Coming. And then after that, we're going to have about 300 years, right? So this remnant goes through persecution. Well, about 300 years later, in 351 A.D., 51% of Rome are Christians. Now, we just have to kind of run this through our mind, because Nero is coming into power. He's going to try to do his best to squash out every Christian in Rome. He's going to feed them to lions. He's going to behead them. He's going to light them as lampposts going down the street. That's what he does to Christians. But about 300 years later, half of Rome are Christians. So what happened? How did we get here? And there's a lot of reasons we can uh, pontificate, but here's the reality, that this remnant in Rome survived that the gospel was spread, the gospel went forward because these 20 to 40 people were so courageous to not give up on the gospel, to not give up on preaching Christ and Christ crucified, that suffering, persecution, martyrdom, nothing intimidated them because their love for Christ, this courageous confidence in who he is, is what eventually led to 350 million Christians in Rome. Blows my mind how that happened. Because as we're reading through this going, oh man, they're done. I mean, they are sunk. Christianity within Rome is dead. 300 years later, 51% of Rome are believers. So how did this happen? What confidence did they have? What welled up this courage in them? Well, I'm glad you asked. The first thing that we have to see to help build this confidence that was in them and now is us is the footstool. The footstool. This should build this confidence in us. So, So look back with me at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered once for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, so underneath this footstool, there's a few caveats that we need to understand. And the first is the drum that we've beaten pretty hard so far because the book of Hebrews has beaten it. You have this separation that the author, the preacher, is trying his best to show us that Jesus is better than the priest, better than the sacrificial system. So just in this text, here's what we see, that the priests offer sacrifice daily, but Jesus' sacrifice was once for all time. That the priests stood during their service. They were constantly walking around, making sure they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. But Christ sits at the right hand of God. For the priests, multiple sacrifices were offered again and again and again and again. But Christ, it was one. And the last that we see from the priests is the sacrifices could never fully take away the sin of man. It was kicking the can down the road. But Christ accomplished the perfect sacrifice that his sacrifice appeased God once and for all time. So we clearly see here that a priest stands, but the king sits. That Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
that it is finished, it is done. But what is happening here with this imagery of the footstool? So this is a quotation out of Psalm 110, um, which you've probably heard this before. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So this idea of footstool comes up over and over and over again. And here's what we see. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 puts it this way. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies at his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So we just have to really picture this. You have the modern day priests, or the Hebrews, the ones receiving this letter, would have the idea of the priest running around doing everything that he needed to do. But the imagery here of King Jesus is sitting, and not just seated but with his feet kicked up. Now, I don't know about your family growing up, but just picture this. If you walk into a room, if you walk into my house, and I'm sitting in my recliner with my feet up, do you think I'm worried about anything? I mean, just that posture, doesn't that breed? Man, you don't have any concerns, any thoughts, anything. You're just confident. You're, you're ready to go. Because if I'm paranoid, if I'm worried, bro, I'm pacing. Anyone else? I'm thinking I can't sit still. I'll sit down for a few minutes and I'll get back up and walk around. I'll be piddling with things. I'll get snippy. I'll start cleaning. But when I'm sitting in my recliner with my feet kicked up, the world is right. So when we think about Jesus, how do we think about him? When we pray, when we consider him, how do we consider King Jesus? Because we should be thinking of him this way, that he is seated with his feet propped up, not worried about a thing. Now, what does that do for us? What does that do for us and our confidence in him? When Jesus is sitting with his feet propped up, just chilling. Is he anxious? No. Is he worried? No. Is he surprised because the world seems to be falling apart? No. He's seated, feet kicked up, fully in control, fully in power, fully God. And that should just well up in us confidence. It should just well up in us confidence of who he is. But, but we need to look for a second here at the enemies, that the enemies would be his footstool. Because they're getting, take back to the imagery of the girls coming upstairs. This is where we start to separate ourselves from the world, right? The, the enemies, those are God's enemies. So we need to clearly define what he means by enemies. Because here's the reality. If we were born sinful, spoiler alert, all of us are, all of us were at one time enemies of God. All of us. That we all deserve the wrath of God because of the sinful nature in us. So we were all at once enemies to God. That's what makes the gospel just incredible to understand. That God sent Christ to purchase the atonement for his enemies to be his sons and daughters. I mean, that should just blow our mind constantly over and over again. That one, like the Bible says, once would scarcely die for one that they love. Why would we ever die for one that we hate? But we were all at once enemies of God. So what is this passage really getting at? Because if we take this literally, we start to separate ourselves. But, but did Rome do that? I mean, the, the ones that are beheading their friends, the ones that are lighting their bodies on fire, the ones that they could actually make an argument, those are our enemies, let's leave them alone. Well, the Hebrews didn't do that because 51% of them trusted Christ as their Savior. 
Paul didn't do that. When they throwed him in jail, what happened? He converts all the prisoners to Christ. So the ones arresting him weren't his enemies. The apostles, the ones that beat the apostles, they come out singing and praising God because they were worthy to be suffering for the sake of Christ. They didn't view the ones that were persecuting them as enemies. So church, we don't have the right to view the world as enemies. That is not our job. And listen, we're starting to look like the world because we're falling into the polarization and the algorithms of social media and it's happening here. That we are far too often off-riding people that we disagree with just like the world does. We can all ridicule cancel culture, but it's happening within the church. We can all ridicule um, all these things that we see happening in the world, but we're doing the exact same thing because we have a skewed version of the enemies of God. Those are his enemies, not ours. What were we called to do? What were we commanded to do while we were here? Well, Matthew 5, 43 through 48 puts it this way. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons and so excuse me, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What should set the church apart is how we have conflict resolution. What should set the church apart is this polarization that's taking place. We should be reaching across and befriending everyone. We should be loving. Now, does this mean that we should just be rolled over and not stand up for the doctrines of the gospel? By no means. But it should be seasoned with love every single time. If you take the substance, the argument out of the way, and you just watch it, how we behave, we should not behave the same way that the world does. This all is rooted in the idea of who our enemies are. And here's the reality. Our enemies are not people. Our enemies are not political leaders. Our enemies are not those that persecute us. Our enemies go way deeper than that. Here's what Ephesians 6 would say. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done it all, to stand firm. So what is our space here? That if Jesus is at the end of time is going to sit with his feet propped up on his enemies, what is our role here? was to do everything in our power, preach the gospel boldly, to love and serve those around us, to make as many of those enemies God's friends. That's all we're here to do. We're not here to uh, separate ourselves. We're not here to fall asleep. We're not here to go crazy like the world. We're here to win as many over from enemies to sons and daughters as we can. And that does not happen by living like the world. And that does not happen by separating ourselves from the world. It happens through the bold, confidence, courageous proclamation of the gospel and serving the world around us. It's not our job, church, to label enemies and friends. It's our job to preach the message of reconciliation, that I was an enemy of God. 
that apart from Christ saving me, rescuing me, redeeming me, I was an enemy of God. And by God's grace, I'm not. Was it because it was my choice? It wasn't because I did anything to earn enough good deeds for salvation. It's because God loves me, and that same love compels me to tell you how much Christ loves you. That's what it looks like for us. Let us not get bought up in this polarization and algorithms that rule the world right now. Let us be different. So with that being said, the footstool should drive confidence in us. Christ is not worried. The Godhead is not worried. They're fully in control, fully in power. And we see this manifesting itself in verse 15. Because first we see the footstool, but, but now we get to focus on the Spirit. Look with me at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Now, I just want to be candid here. This could be days of lecturing and sermons, all that's going on in here. Days. And, and we can refer you to some really good books that will help unpack this idea. But, but here's the ultimate thing that we need to see. Is the Holy Spirit's role separate or different in the Old Testament and New Testament? What is the Holy Spirit's role? Because we see this mentioned a few times in the book of Hebrews. This idea of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But what does the Holy Spirit actually do? And is it fully distinguished from Old Testament to New Testament? So let's just talk about Old Testament first, and I'm just going to read a, a, it's a little longer quote from R.C. Sproul that will help us understand this idea. The Old Covenant ministry of the Spirit to gift individuals for service was mainly limited to prophets, priests, and kings, although he regenerated all believers during the Old Covenant period. The Spirit anointed prophets to speak God's words, priests to intercede for the people, and kings to lead Israel against the enemies of God. The Lord used all these individuals to advance his plan of redemption, pointing ultimately to Christ, whom the Spirit anointed as our prophet, priest, and king to secure our eternal salvation. So here's what we see the old excuse me, here's what we see the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament. He's always been the comforter of God's people, right? He's always been the one who sanctifies the hearts of the believer. He's always been the one that empowers the people of God to overcome sin into the mighty deeds of love and courage. He's always been the one that cries out, Abba Father, in our hearts. But they also had the law. They also have the law. So we have to see this massive distinguishment here. That yes, the Holy Spirit has always been active. We see him in Genesis 1-1. That the Spirit was hovering around. He's always been here, but was his role different? Because they had the law. They had the order. They had the commands. And so we see this a little bit more clearly when we talk about the Old Testament prophets prophesying about what the new covenant's going to look like, what they're looking forward to. So I'm going to read two really quickly. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was a husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And Ezekiel 36 has a very similar story. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and from you, your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statuses and be careful to obey my rules. So we see this distinguishment starting to happen, right? That in the old covenant, the spirit was active, but they had the law. It was external, They had the commands, they had the ceremonial laws, they had all these laws that they were to follow to make them more like Christ, to show them who Christ is. That was the point of the old covenant, to point them to the Messiah that's coming. But now that Christ has abolished the law, he's fulfilled the law, now we have the Spirit in us that points us back to Christ. So the law and the Spirit are doing the exact same thing. It's pointing us to the sufficiency and the sovereignty of Christ. But the way that it's going about doing that is different. But here's the reality. Are we the sleepers that are living like the Spirit does not exist? Are we taking for granted the fact that the Spirit is in us? I mean, it's like my wife used to say. We have four kids, and so when she was pregnant, she would always bring up this point, which is just so sweet to think about, that when she's pregnant for those nine, ten months, whatever it was, times four, so 40 months, whoa, 40 months, that's a long time. She would say this over and over, I love being pregnant. I know some of you hate her already, but I love being pregnant because it's the only time where I'm never alone, that someone is always with me. And at first I'd say, you're a heretic because Christ is always with you through spirit, right? I'm just kidding. But, but that is the comfort that we have is that the Spirit is in us. So as Dylan and I were talking about this text, I just posed this question, and I'll pose it to you in the same. What would you rather have? Would you rather have the law, do this, do this, do this, on paper so that you could see, or would you rather have the Spirit in us guiding us every step of the way? Because again, most of us live in that way. We live in a bunch of do's and don'ts because of the environment that we've been raised in. Do this, don't do this, that's what it means to be a Christian. But have we really trusted and embraced the role of the Spirit within us? Because here's what Jesus was to say. John, I would encourage you, go read John 14 through John 16 this afternoon. It's brilliant. There's so many gems that Jesus brings out about the Spirit. But here's just a few. John's 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. He dwells with you and will be in you. So the Godhead dwells in us, something that because of the sacrificial system could not fully happen. They had the law. Now we have the Spirit. John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. John 15, 26 through 27, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have, have been dealing with me from the beginning. And John 16, 4 through 15, I won't read all of it, but let me just read verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, for whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
Now, the idea of the Spirit indwelling in us, Christ with us forever, Godhead with us forever at all times, should instill with us confidence. But the sad reality is it doesn't. The sad reality is it doesn't. John Piper puts it this way. The church today is so sleepy that some of us have even fallen behind the Old Testament saints in our appropriation of what the Spirit has to give. That we have even fallen behind the Old Testament. So, so Piper goes on to explain this point a little bit, and he compares it to a dam, right? So when you have a dam, you can let a little bit of water out. And he says the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was like just a little stream was coming out of the dam, that the Holy Spirit was leading and guiding and directing, but it was just a little stream. But when we get to the New Testament, the New Covenant, it's like the dam has been destroyed and water is constantly rushing out. But we're too Baptist for the Spirit, right? I mean, we just act like it doesn't exist. It does not empower us. It does not encourage us. It does not lead us to deeper waters with Him. We live as there's still no hope for us. We live as though God is not near to us. We live as the, the burden He has called us to carry is far more weighty than the help He has to offer us through the Spirit. That is how we walk. That is how we live. So what does it look like to have true courage, to have true confidence in Christ? It's understanding that he's with us forever, always our helper, constantly leading us, directing us, pursuing us. Uh, just all cards on the table. And maybe my, my job is a little, not maybe, my job is very different than what a lot of you do. But I would encourage you just to do the same. When you're walking into having hard conversations, when you're walking into that meeting, before you go in and confront someone on their sin, before you even have to make a hard decision, just stop for a minute and say, Holy Spirit, would you guide me through this conversation? Holy Spirit, would you give me the words to say? Holy Spirit, would you open my eyes to the reality of what's actually happening here in this moment? And there's so many times when I've said that prayer, I've walked into that meeting, something has come out of my mouth and I went, who said that? There's so many times where my flesh would have obviously done something different. I love wrath. Anger comes naturally for me. Anyone else? So I'm walking into these meetings. I'm walking into these conversations where insults are coming my way. And I'm just going, hey, brother, I feel sorry for you that you would talk that way. That is not me. My flesh wants to pull the old timer out of my pocket. It's only two inches, but I know I can hit an artery. Let's go. Sorry, too far? No one else? Judgment. I'm not your enemy. But do we ever say that prayer? Do we ever rely on the Spirit? Do we ever trust Him to do what only He can do? I just don't think we do. I don't think that our confidence is in that. And lastly, we see this passage end in verse 17. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I mean, maybe you're not like me, but how many of us will do something wrong and apologize about 30,000 different times in 30,000 different ways, and we'll go buy gifts and we'll make sure things are right, a Chick-fil-A biscuit fixes everything, so I'll drop by a biscuit for like a week straight. That's just kind of RMO, right? 
we have to keep, keep, keep seeking forgiveness. Or maybe some of you are in this room go the other way, that we just hide from that conversation like nothing ever happened. Any Enneagram nines in here? You don't even want to raise your hand because you're a peacemaker. You don't want to ruffle any feathers. Yes, I quoted the Enneagram. No, that's not witchcraft, all right? Get over it. But what if, what if we actually believe this passage to be true? I mean, just let's tease this out. For, we have a few more minutes. What if we actually believe this passage to be true, that he will remember our sins and lawless deeds no more because of what Christ accomplished on the cross? Jesus never looks at us and views us as the sinful, imperfection, wretches that we know that we are. Ever. Because of what Christ accomplished for us, when God looks at us, he sees his perfected son. That is the identity that we now have. So what would that do to our prayer life? What would that do to our confidence in him? What would that do that he never looks down upon us, but he's a, we are a son, we are a daughter in whom he is pleased Look at a confidence with that well up in us. If we weren't walking around like we're damaged products all the time, but we were walking around with the true identity that Christ has given us, how much more confident would we be to love our neighbors? How much more confident would we be? Because we're not working out of our salvation. We're not working to earn anything. We're doing this because of Christ's love for us. What kind of confidence would that well up in us? How much courageousness would we have if that truth was a reality in our hearts? Psalm 103, 8-13 puts it this way. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our own sins nor repay us according to our own iniquities. Now, can I just be real honest for a second? Here's, here's what I want, and I'm, I'm not making any accusations. I'm assuming this is happening within you. But you know what I really want for the branch? And when I read that passage, we lose our minds. We don't sit here like the good news of the gospel was not just read over us. That when I read, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, that we can't just sit here like that is not the greatest news we've ever heard in our lives. That we were enemies to God and he loves us. That he can't get over us. That he sent his son to die for us. And then we don't sit here like bumps on a log when we read the greatest news of the gospel. That's what I want for us. That we would cheer at that text like we would for UGA football. That we would get excited over the good news of the gospel like we would anything else. God, help us. Would there be a day when we read that passage and we cannot stop but from going crazy because we understand it? Because we feel it. Because we understand the weight of our sin, the depravity of our souls, and the goodness of the gospel. Church, I just long to see that. That's long, in my own heart, too. I want that. I want us to be excited about what I just read, not wondering if you're even with me anymore. 
Not that you're thinking about what's for lunch, but we could just sit here and celebrate the goodness of God's love for us that he does not repay our evil with evil. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. See, confidence in him and courageousness in him, we would just go crazy at that verse. That our hearts could not stop knowing that he has forgiven us. And not only has he forgiven us, but he resides in us. And not only does he reside in us, but his enemies are his footstool, meaning he's fully in control and power forever. Man, the day that we get that, the day that we wake up to the realities of the gospel, is the day that our community and our worlds change forever. It's today that a remnant, 20 to 40 people, 300 years later, have turned 350 million people to the heart of the gospel. But we're sleeping. Our confidence is not in Him. Our courage is not in Him. We're comfortable. We're okay. We come to church on Sunday. We pray. And that's about the extent of our lives. Church, I want more for us. I want more for this town. I want more for our hearts. I want more for my kids. I want more of Christ in everything. We should not manage the church. We should not manage what we do. We should not get to a point where we're comfortable, that the day-to-day operations are okay. We should constantly be paying catch up to the works of God in our city. We read Acts. Those guys had, did not have it figured out. Uh, we can't feed the widows and orphans. You seven, go. Just the narrative of the book of Acts, that things were moving so quickly they could not keep up. Church, I want that. I desire that for us. But we have to ask ourselves this question, where does our confidence lie? Where does our confidence lie? What is our comfort? Is it in peace? Is it in money, comfort, spouse, career, retirement plan, future, kids, home, 20-year plan, 30-year plan, life insurance plan? Where does our comfort lie? Where is our satisfaction Because I can't help it. I want to see a move of God here. I want our lives to count. And I'm not talking doing something crazy and radical. I'm talking about just doing the things that God has already asked us to do. We're not trying to recreate the wheel. I want us to fall in love with Christ and have so much confidence and courage in Him that we can't not do what God has asked us to do. That we can't not turn this world upside down for the sake of the gospel. That we look so different from the world. Just a few stand up with the courage and confidence in Him. So for us, where is our courage and where is our confidence? 
is that the footstool, the spirit, and the forgiveness, or is it our comfort in our home and our finances? We have to wrestle with these questions. If we want to see a move of God that we see in Hebrews, we've got to answer these questions rightly. So let's pray. Father, would we know you rightly? Now, that's such a simple prayer, but we mean it with all of our hearts. Would we understand truly who you are? God, would we not be asleep to the realities of what's happening here? Would we not act like the world that pretends like you don't exist? And will we not separate ourselves from what's happening here? But Father, would we get active and involved? And Father, would our motivation not simply be so that you wouldn't be mad at us, so that you would love us more, so that you would be happy with us? Father, would we understand the true realities of the gospel? That right now, in this moment, because of what Christ has done for us, you cannot love us anymore. You cannot love us any less. That our future security is set. That salvation is not a thing that we can lose if we don't do enough good deeds. That our eternity is set in you. So let us walk in the good deeds that you prepared for us. Let us be bold with the proclamation of the gospel. Let us love and serve those around us like there's a reality happening here. And let our motivation not be to earn your love, but because you have loved us. God, would we meditate on your scripture day in and day out? Would we delight, would we get giddy when we read that you do not deal with us according to our sins and repay us according to our iniquities? And I'm not talking about cheesy emotionalism, God. Would, would that change our outlook on everything? Would it not be the law that comes from the outside in, but would it be from the spirit that comes from the inside out? Would this radically reorient everything that we do for the sake of your name? But we must first have courage and confidence in you, in who you say you are. Because you are better. You are greater, Father. We know you're better than the old covenant. You're better than the sacrificial system. You're better than Melchizedek. But also, King Jesus, we know that you're better than our security. You're better than our comfort. You're better than our homes. You're better than our lives. Father, would you start something in us? Would you well up your truth in us that we could not stay the same? Would we be bored with quote-unquote religion? 
Lord, we be delightful in true gospel-centered obedience to you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the footstool. Thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you for all that you've done, will do, and continue to do for us and in us. Father, would this radical obedience to you change our hearts, change our homes, change the city, and change the world for your name's sake. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for redeeming us, for forgiving us. As far as the east is from the west, our sins have been forgiven and forgotten. It's your name that we pray. Amen.